Hello and welcome to this, the 15th episode in this series of podcasts as I continue to tell my story of the Reverend Sabine Baring Gould and his folk song collecting in Devon. In this episode, more about his life from when he leaves Devon to go up to Cambridge and then on to be a teacher. His travels to Iceland, where he gets the idea to write about werewolves and an Icelandic saga. As I mentioned in podcast 13, on returning home to England in 1851, from their years travelling in Europe, Sabine's father Edward rented a house in Tavistock for the family, as Lou Trenchard Manor had been rented out to tenants. So it was in 1852, at the age of 18, Sabine leaves Tavistock to go up to Clare College, Cambridge, and over the coming years he would only come back for short stays at Lou Trenchard Manor. Over the years I have collected six biographies on the life of the Reverend Sabine Baring Gould, the first one being published as far back as 1947, with five more being added over the following 70 years. So I have much to choose from when I am researching a topic for a podcast or a song and talk I give about Sabine that I've been booked for. The following I have cherry-picked from Chapter 2 of the biography of Sabine by his grandson, Bickford H.C. Dickinson. In it he says that Sabine's father had insisted that Sabine should study to be an engineer and was dead against his son's thoughts of joining the church. But... Because of the family's years of travel in Europe, there had been very little proper schooling for Sabine, other than a couple of years at King's College School London and a year at Warwick Grammar School. Even with his father providing a private tutor to help improve his maths, Sabine gained no benefit from this and proved to be an incapable student to study engineering. In the end, his father gave up on his wish for his son to become an engineer, and he reluctantly saw Sabine enter Clare College in the autumn of 1852 as a classics scholar. This would leave Edward and Sabine in an uncomfortable father and son relationship for much of their future. There seems to be little to tell about Sabine's time at Cambridge. As a classic student, due to his lack of formal education, he must have struggled with his studies, as his knowledge of Greek and Latin were not his strong points. Sabine had not, unlike his fellow students, been to public school, so he had never played sports or games, which was a large part of university life. He had no interest in them whatsoever. Such an unusual young man would have come in for much ragging, but throughout his life Sabine had something strangely formidable about him that would have discouraged horseplay. One thing that was unusual about Sabine, he spoke five languages fluently. These were all acquired by the family's years of wandering around Europe. But then while at Cambridge, his thoughts of joining the church grew. Together with a few others, he formed what would have been called a holy club, and he collected a number of admirers and followers. When he took his degree, Sabine's thoughts were already turning to ordination, but his mind was in turmoil. He realised that he was out of touch with the workaday world about him, and the rectory must be reserved for a younger brother. When it came to earning a living, he knew his limitations only too well. 
Though widely read, he had no specialised training that would help him in any profession. His father's suggestion that he should seek a post at Marlborough Grammar School, where his uncle Frederick Bond was headmaster, he refused. He was in the mood to refuse any suggestion made by his father. Ungaining his degree, quietly, Sabine slipped away from Cambridge and volunteered to teach not at Marlborough, but in the choir school of St Barnabas, Pimlico. While at St Barnabas, he received bed and board, but no pay. Added to this, his father refused to give him an allowance, so Sabine financially must have been in a critical situation. It was at Pimlico that he met the Reverend Charles Lauder, who, realising Sabine's situation, found him a post of assistant master at Hurst Pierpoint School, Lansing, Sussex. He was at Hurst Pierpoint for eight years, and in that time he taught elementary Latin, French, German, drawing and chemistry. He seems to have been very popular with the boys, especially with his stories of the Icelandic sagas. He told them after his visit to Iceland in 1861. Now from the second biography I cherry-picked from titled Half My Life by Keith Lister. And Keith wrote, Whilst at Hurst Pierpoint School, Sabine decided to take a trip to Iceland. He taught himself the Icelandic language, hired a man to cover his teaching duties and was all set to once more travel abroad. Prepared and equipped for his Icelandic adventure, he took passage aboard a ship from Grangemouth to Reykjavik, Iceland in late June 1861. On his arrival at Reykjavik, Sabine hired guides and then horses to carry his equipment and food. During the evenings, Sabine was often entertained with singing and recitations of the old Norse sagas. He showed his appreciation by handing out trinkets, and after one such pleasant evening of being entertained, he was about to present a cheap ring to the young daughter of his host when he was warned off. Such a gesture could be seen as an offer of marriage, and seeing she was neither beautiful or in good health, he gave her a trinket instead. He explored the country, capturing scenes of places of importance and ones that interested him by painting them in watercolour. The so-called Vampire's Grave in Iceland stimulated Sabine into writing his book The Book of Werewolves, and there is evidence that Bram Stoker consulted Sabine's work while writing Count Dracula in 1897. After much persuasion and years of translating the old manuscripts, Sabine finally wrote Greta the Outlaw in 1890. Sabine returned home and arrived at Liverpool on the 9th of August 1861. On his return to Hurst Pierpoint, he was constantly aware of his urge to be ordained. His religious development had been greatly influenced by his mother, Sophia. So, it was very fitting that prior to her death from cancer in 1863, 
that she withdrew her opposition to his going into the church. Even so, his father maintained that if he were ordained, then he would lose his inheritance, and the best he could hope for would be the living at St Peter's Church, Lutrenchard. Then a change of fortune that would have a great effect on Sabine's life. In 1864, a vacancy arose for a chaplain at her school. Sabine knew that he was not qualified to apply for this position, but he did know that his friend, the Reverend J.T. Fowler, had already been appointed to open a new church mission at Horbury Brig, Yorkshire. Working quickly, Sabine persuaded Fowler to apply for the position of chaplain at Hurst, in the hope that John Sharp, the vicar of Horbury, would then take Sabine on in Fowler's place. Sharp agreed. Fowler was duly appointed chaplain, and Sabine met Bishop Robert Bickersteth of Ripon in London and submitted himself for ordination. Now it's time for a song. As Sabine had rebelled against his father, this song from his collection I think fits the ending to this time of his rebellion. It is, as far as I know, the only anti-establishment or anti-war song in Sabine's folk song collection. For me it is a humorous way of two chaps not taking up the recruiting sergeant's offer to enlist and enjoy the wonderful life of the army that it had to offer. It was taken down by Freddie Bustle in 1892 from Sam Fone of Mary Tavy. Sam had learnt it from his father, and with the title Arthur Lee Bride, we find it in Songs of the West. And here is my version of Arthur McBride. Well, I once knew a fella named Arthur McBride And he and I wandered down by the seaside A-looking for pleasure and what might be tied And the weather was pleasant and charming So gaily and gallant we went on our tramp And we met Sergeant Harper and Corporal Cramp And the little wee drummer what roused up the camp With his rowdy-dow-dow in the morning Good morning, fine fellas, the sergeant, he cried, and the same to you, sergeant, was all our reply. No more was spoken, we made to pass by, and continue our walk in the morning. Well now, you young fellas, if you will enlist, well, a guinea in gold I will slap in your fist, and a crown into the bargain to kick up the dust. So now, you young buggers, take warning. Well, no, Mr. Sergeant, we are not for sale. We'll make no such bargain, your bribe won't avail. We're not tired of our country, we don't wish to sail. Though your offer is pleasant and charming. For if we were such fools as to take your advance, well, it's right bloody slender would be our poor chance. And the Queen wouldn't scruple to send us to France and get us all shot in the morning. Well now, you young buggers, if you say one more word, well I swear by the heron I'll draw out my sword and run through your body as me strength may afford. So now, you young buggers, take warning. 
Well, we beat that bold drummer as flat as a shoe And we made a football of his rowdy dow do And as for the others, we knocked out the two Christ, we were the boys in the morning We took the old weapons what hung by their sides And we threw them as far as we could in the tide May the devil go with you, says Arthur McBride, for delaying our walk this fine morning. I learnt this song with the title Arthur McBride, with very similar lyrics, in the 1960s. Sometime after I had started to sing it, I heard the Irish singer Paul Brady sing it, the same song with the same tune and the similar lyrics as I had, but with an extra eight verses, giving a total of 16 verses, which in my opinion gives a much fuller story. What I find interesting in this song, it's of Irish origin and comes from the singing of a P.W. Joyce, born in Limerick in 1827. He learned it as a boy, Mr Joyce was of the opinion that song originated in Donegal and he wondered how it got to Limerick. (laughs) I'm wondering how the song came from Limerick across to England and by the time it got to Devon, uh, somewhat over 400 miles, it had a title change and it had lost eight verses. If you want to hear Paul Brady's longer excellent version, you can find it on YouTube. So then in the next episode... Sabine is off to Ripon to be ordained and then he's on to be the curate at Horbury for a great change in his life. This has been the 15th episode in this podcast series for Parson and the Songman. It was produced by John Tidball. Thank you very much for listening. I am Mike Bosworth. Until next time, I wish you well. Bye bye.